Hello and welcome to Failing Boldly, a podcast that invites people to share stories about failure, resilience, and perseverance. I'm your host, Christian Kuhn. I'm continuing this little mini-series about journalism as I talk to freelance journalist Derek Clifton. Derek is a journalist focused on the intersections of identity, culture, and social justice issues. Their work has appeared at NBC News Digital, Vice, and The Tribe, as well as various news and culture outlets. They were most recently the communications manager for ProPublica Illinois, the first regional newsroom operation of ProPublica. Derek has some engaging and honest things to say about the state of journalism today and their own experience of being a black queer journalist. I hope you enjoy it. Derek Clifton, thank you so much for being on the Failing Boldly podcast. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Before we talk about your current career in journalism, I'd love to hear a little bit about your background and how you came to be a journalist and what were the early influences for you on deciding on this career? Well, I'm a born and raised native of the south side of Chicago. Um, Grew up in, you know, at least half of the time in in Englewood, which a lot of people associate with a lot of negative stereotypes, violence, um, you know, poverty, a lot of, quite frankly, you know, negative and anti-Black kind of thoughts emerge whenever I say that name. And then spent the other half of my upbringing close to Beverly and Evergreen Park, um, but still in the city of Chicago. So was able to experience urbanity and blackness in different ways. And growing up, I never really saw a lot of positive coverage of my community um, unless there was news about a shooting Hmm. um, or about a drug arrest. It was never about the small businesses that opened up or the churches doing work for those in need in the community, you know, places that I was routinely exposed to, uh, but never quite got the attention that they needed. And couple that with coming of age to know that I was queer and growing up in the church with a lot of ministers in the family and quite religious immediate family. It was, where two different parts of my identity were invalidated in one way or another Mm. Um, in in, in public. I mean, you know, whether it's, you know, how the media covered things before same-sex marriage was passed, um, like thinking like pre-Ellen coming out (laughs) and being on the cover of Time, uh, for instance. Um, Mm. So having to really filter through a lot of negative messages and getting to high school and college and digging deeper and realizing, you know, I want to be part of the change and to have people like me see themselves and hopefully that, you know, a generation coming up can see the work that me and my peers are doing in the press and, and feel affirmed and honestly validated in who they are. So that's how I got there. When you were at Northwestern, did you have a sense as you were exploring and thinking about a career in journalism did you have a sense at first what your dream job would be? You you would love to do 
you know, work for this particular uh, publication or whatever. And, and now that you've been out of college for a few years, uh, and we were talking before we started recording about the challenges for journalists now, so many are freelance. So I guess first, talk about a little bit of what, what did you think journalism, the journalism world would be like, and what was your dream at first? Well, at first, my dream wasn't journalism. I, I okay. went through policy debate and thought I was going to be a corporate lawyer. Oh, okay. And, um, and then, in fact, I did through a scholarship program, I did two summer internships uh, with like the legal support staff at two different law firms in town and realized, oh, absolutely not. <laughs> this is not the tea for me. <laughs> uh, but in the second of the, in the second internship, I was exposed to intellectual property laws that relate to marketing. So I saw, I thought, hmm, communications. That could be an interesting route to go. Um, you know, but it was for me not seeing a lot of people like me doing the work that at least from what I, I would engage with, that was a bit demoralizing. And in terms of journalism, just made me feel like, is this something I can do? You know, especially thinking this is back in what, 2007, 2008, when I was finishing high school and starting college. Then I didn't really see black queer people, let alone like openly queer people. Mm-hmm. doing the work and being successful because in so many places you get fired for it from your job. And then of course, when you're black, you have to deal with, you know, challenging racism at every turn. So that coupled with my relationship with media beforehand, I didn't see it for myself in journalism. And it took me stumbling into it during college as an extension of my activism what I guess have been first generally, what have been the biggest challenges for for you and for journalists in general? And then I want to ask you specifically what have been the challenges for you as a as a black journalist, as a queer journalist. But let's start with what are the what are the general challenges that journalists are facing or faced with uh, today? First and foremost, we have an, a presidential administration that undermines and attacks the First Amendment and the freedom of the press without fail. And that sows a lot of discord and distrust in the work that we that we do. The second thing is that a lot of the a big reason why the jobs are dwindling in the field is because the business model has been fundamentally disrupted. You know, before digital of course, you know, print papers had classifieds. Um, they had a lot of advertising um, and a lot of that money has now gone to big tech, to Amazon, to Google, to Facebook. And even though, especially Facebook and even Twitter to a degree benefit from the content that journalists produce in terms of public conversation, public service, in terms of generating dialogue and getting people, you know, fodder for interaction on these, you know, online communities, that revenue is not being shared with news outlets. And it almost creates a situation where it's pay to play. So it's hard, not only for quality content to reach people, it's hard for us to make money doing the work that we're doing 
which, you know, is important, um, even as it is a public service. So you deal with those systemic issues on top of the fact that journalism in itself is under challenge because now digital has, you know, you have all these different daily callers and drudge reports and, you know, QAnon has emerged as a force. You know, you have people who are in the business of misinformation Mm. and we have not had the best time in fundamentally shutting that down. Mm. And if if people aren't media literate, no one's taught usually in school how to differentiate between a source like the New York Times and a random blog. Yeah. So the rallying cry of fake news becomes all that easier to buy into because some people now don't even know what to believe. So I think you put all of that together and journalists these days have an uphill climb ahead of them outside of the day-to-day of doing the work. Mm -hmm. That makes it tougher. We mentioned earlier in my podcast last week, I talked to the dean of the Medill School of Journalism, Charles Whitaker, and he said that journalists today have a much harder job than journalists a generation or two ago for a lot of the reasons that you named, but just also the expectations that journalists have today are so much greater. I mean, the journalism, the work itself of researching an article, doing the actual writing, doing the interviews, everything else but you're also expected to be an amateur photographer, perhaps amateur videographer. You have not just one outlet that you're writing for, but then you've got to think about all the other social media channels that you're paying attention to. And so the workload is just that much more um, uh, greater for journalists today than it used to be. Absolutely. And, And that's because there are fewer jobs to go around, less money to go around to pay people to specialize. Like I'll never forget starting grad school at Medill. This was what, 2013. And one of the adjunct professors who taught the photography class, which was one of my favorite classes, I loved it, about making, not taking photos, was one of the Sun-Times photographers that was laid off and replaced by iPhones. They mm-hmm. giving reporters phones to take, you know, high quality phones to take pictures with. But if I'm trying to focus on writing <laughs> and I'm not a photographer by trade or a videographer by trade, then while I can produce quality work in terms of my writing and I may be able to pick up skills along the way, it's not the same. And I don't think we can say it is. If you're a journalist and you're going to an event, a newsworthy event, you are doing your best to listen and to watch and to get a sense of the scene So for your article. But that's impaired a little bit because you're also having to live tweet what's going on. And so you're paying it, you have to worry about that in addition to the, all the other stuff that you're in. So all of the things that a journalist has to think about today makes me realize just what, what a challenging occupation and vocation it is now. Yeah, and there is a constant feedback loop, which I think ultimately serves to the benefit of journalism because mm-hmm. now there's a greater call for being accountable to the communities that are being reported about. Mm-hmm. And 
rather than it be where it's a letter to the editor. It's now a tweet to the reporter, a tweet to the editor, a tweet to the publication's main handle, or even a coordinated campaign by an advocacy group as it relates to how people and issues are being represented. So there's no shortage of having to filter out a lot of opinions on the internet and really understanding what to take in and how to make changes and what's just plain out, you know, bad faith criticism and trolling. Because there's also that aspect of having to deal with harassment and threats um, and online bullying, you know, because the journalist covered something that somebody didn't like. I mean, these are things that are, that, you know, are not new challenges, but it's even, it's hyper amplified now with social media. This is a podcast about failure. So now I want to ask you, it's a general question, but to ask you, how have newsrooms failed specifically journalists of color and how have they failed queer journalists? I'll start with how they failed queer journalists. One, and this has gotten better in recent years, but I think it still is worth acknowledging that we are only months out of a Supreme Court ruling, a landmark ruling, that at least on the federal level prevents LGBT people from being fired at the workplace because of who they are. Um, I should say LGBTQ plus people. Um, so that spectrum. Um, I don't want to get in trouble. But that that affects how people show up to work um, and the environments and whether or not they feel they can bring their whole selves to the profession. And it's an, it's an additional stressor when you're trying to do your job, bring your best self, but you can't bring your whole self to what you do. I think that's one thing. And journalism has not always been LGBTQ friendly. And in fact, has bought into a lot of the, you know, staunch conservative, you know, narratives around issues like marriage, around issues like sexuality. I mean, even recently, The Intercept had to put on blast a congressional campaign um, in Massachusetts for helping to promote a narrative about a gay candidate who was dating within reasonable terms, but the way the story was told made it come off as though gay sexuality is inherently predatory, which of course plays into tropes that go back decades about, you know, where, where te- people who were teachers would get fired, you know, because, oh, they're gay, that means they're, they're predator. No. And, 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 these, and these are things that sh- shouldn't be fit to print, but without there being an environment where people feel empowered to come out to be their full selves, you don't have anybody that's able to empower to speak up. And it doesn't make matters easier when, because of the larger systemic crisis in journalism right now, a lot of the LGBTQ plus publications have either substantially downsized or folded. Mm. So queer media is suffering right Mm. now. And I think that's sad. Um, 
but to transition to how journalism has failed Black communities, part of it goes back to what I was saying earlier about how I grew up. You know, for example, here in Chicago, a new business opens up in Lakeview or in the Gold Coast or in Ravenswood, the cameras show up. There's attention, there's positive feedback. You don't see that kind of coverage for a lot of businesses on the South Side. Now it's gotten better in recent years, but for a long time, the South Side, the West Side, there was no interest in covering positive stories. There was only interest in covering violence, shooting, death, if it bleeds, it leads. And, and, that, and that creates a false perception that, you know, Black communities, Black people are inherently violent, not worth being around, and it reinforces the racial segregation that undergirds a lot of policy problems. In terms of movement journalism, there's also issues with, of course, you know, you go back, you know, in King's Day, he wasn't necessarily praised by the press. He was often misaligned and downright scorned by media and seen as an, ag an aggravating agitator. And in some ways, the way that the protests are covered even now, and again, it's gotten better in recent years with more, you know, pressure and more of that feedback loop. But it would it would play into these tropes that these are just a bunch of loud, whiny kids, the both sidesism on racism, especially as it relates to Black Lives Matter and Donald Trump. Five years ago, black journalists, me included, were sounding the alarm. There we were like, hey, this is no joke. You have a full-fledged, racist, white supremacist-backed campaign. You cannot validate this with coverage that is uncritical of the racism. It gives it, it's, it's a tacit approval. And that criticism wasn't heard. So Trump was allowed to run rampant and get plenty of free airtime with that kind of rhetoric. Hyper-amplified, again, by the internet and by social media. Great for ratings, I guess, but terrible for Black communities. And it really undermined a lot of work that people were doing to make the case for equity. And I think the more we've seen things get worse under Trump, especially on issues of race, the more there's been public atonement um, from some news outlets about their role in what I would say, you know, enabling a monster. As a journalist now, do you find yourself wanting to make sure that communities that you know well, Black communities and queer communities, do you find yourself wanting to make sure that those issues get covered? Or do you find yourself also wanting to make sure that you're a journalist that can cover pretty much anything? I would say both. Okay. Um, of course, a lot of us, we specialize, we have our certain beat areas. For me, that has often been looking at the intersection of identity, culture, and social issues. So for me, I want to be able to appropriately cover issues of feminism and gender equity as much as I would be, or even, you know, the range of ability and disability in addition to covering issues of race and 
issues of gender and sexuality in terms of queerness. And I think it's important that regardless of the beat you cover, that you have a level of cultural proficiency so that you're not bringing your own learned or perceived kind of notions about a community or about angles for a story. I think that's important. Whenever we talk about journalists, we often talk about journalists being objective and just reporting the facts and telling the story. But I wonder if being objective is really possible. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that, whether that is possible or is a journalist's subjectivity just par for the course? Objectivity is a big myth. (laughs) A big myth. One that has oftentimes played into cisgender heterosexual white maleness as the default because that's who ran newsrooms, that's who was represented in newsrooms for so many mm-hmm. decades. You know, before white women could get a foothold in there, before black people could work in newsrooms and others. And for some reason, it's it, it's always been on the burden of those who are from more marginalized backgrounds to be like, oh, if you're a woman, how can you possibly cover the women's march without having a bias? Hmm. If you're gay, how can you cover the Supreme Court's rulings on same-sex marriage without having a bias? If you're Black, how can you cover protests in Ferguson without having a bias? But what makes that person's embodied experience a liability compared to their counterparts who don't? If anything, it's an added bonus because you know the nuances. You know the ins and outs of a community and can bring different stories to light that perhaps somebody who is not from that community would not have a clue about in terms of sayings, in terms of cultural differences, in terms of approaches to politics, in terms of social attitudes, you name it. If anything, those viewpoints and perspectives, quite frankly, expertise, should be remunerated properly and should be respected. If anything, I think it's important to have counterweights people who don't necessarily share that same experience to be incorporated into the work is necessary because they can be sounding boards and they can honestly help you break things down if necessary, especially if, for example, it'd be one thing if I were writing a story about a a Black Lives Matter protest for The Root versus writing about it for the Associated Press. Two completely different outlets, two different communities they they serve in terms of mainstream versus black focus, it could be where something I write needs to be explained for a mainstream audience a little bit more so they can understand. And perhaps me having that counterweight, whether it be an editor or a copy editor, you name it, who can maybe flag that helps me 
build a bridge between the work and the audience and can help me be more effective. I think that's when things work, but what doesn't work is when people are presumed either incompetent or a liability because of their background in a newsroom. Yeah. Can you talk about, uh, you're pretty active on Twitter and I, I find interesting. I find it interesting when I, when I follow journalists and I, all of them do it differently. Some, you know, will talk mainly about their role as journalist and here's what I'm working on and here's what I've written. Others put some of their personality uh, in that uh, Twitter feed. And I think before in previous generations, really the only thing they may have known about a journalist was their byline. They didn't really know anything else about their story anything now on Twitter, it gives journalists the opportunity to share more of who they are. And so how have you seen the role of social media in general, but also Twitter specifically for you on how you convey essentially who you are, both as a queer black, uh, queer, queer black person and also as a journalist? Yes, everybody's approach to social media is different. Um, some people would rather just keep it about the work and, you know, just in general, they are a lot more private and prefer, you know, their offline lives be offline and will only give so much to a public platform. I think everybody has their own barometer on that. Though, so from what I've seen and from my own experience, there are a lot more journalists now who are not afraid to be clear about the fact that, hey, my work is what I do, but this is who I am. So they're not flattened to the byline. They're not flattened to the labor that people who are reading the work can clearly see there's a human behind this. Mm-hmm. One who, like them, may watch different music battles that go on the internet. They, you know, talk about memes and their cultural significance, so they have laughs. They're watching award shows. They're interested in a lot more of a range of things than maybe exactly what they cover. And I think that helps in terms of engagement and helping to bring people in Mm. so that it doesn't feel as though there's this disconnect or this stilting for journalists. I think it, 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 honestly, it it also helps people when, when, when people use social media well to understand not only how to pitch someone on an idea for a story, because a lot of journalists will say, hey, if you want to pitch me, you have a story idea for me, here's how to do it. And they'll talk about it. And they'll often talk about some of the, the nature of their job in ways that people didn't talk about previously. So it gives people another inside look into the profession so that when it comes time to say, hey, also, hey, I didn't like how you covered that and here's why. Again, people can remember, there's a human behind the the handle. And let's have a conversation. I think probably, too, for younger generations, and that this will only 
increase in the future for young for younger readers uh, or for younger consumers of media on the one hand one of the things that i fear is that so many of them are used to getting their information for free and so they aren't used to paying for it and so i would think that's a that's a danger but also it seems like there more and more there will be that expectation that they can know more about who it is who is who are writing these articles. And so it's almost, I, I hear you say that different journalists make different choices as far as social media goes, but I would imagine there's probably more and more pressure for them to have some kind of public presence because readers want to know a little bit more about who, you know, whatever it is that they're reading about or watching. Absolutely. And, and one of the good things about social media, I think is that, you know, especially if you're, you know, for example, if you're a sports journalist or a music journalist or an entertainment journalist, it, it gets you from behind the desk and talking about what you like, what you dislike. Um, you know, it's, again, I think it breaks the barrier between the reader and the writer. Um, but back to the notion of people getting things for free, you know, I think it's it's one thing to... It's one thing for people in the profession to bring themselves to their social media presence and to the work they do, especially if they're critics. But a lot more journalists now have been vocal, especially in these times, about the need to pay for the content you consume if you find it to be useful and valuable, you know, whether it be a subscription or, you know, buying merchandise, you name it. Uh, just as a way of patronizing the people that are providing you with information and content you appreciate. I always end these conversations by asking my guests to share a story of failure from their own life. It can be about anything. So I'm wondering if you wouldn't mind sharing something for us today. I'll go back to about five years ago. Uh, This is... I'm in New York working for a digital outlet and the work I did centered around opinions, you know, editing opinions, writing opinions um, about issues that were rooted in online culture and also um, that fit within the areas I tend to write about, about race, gender, sexuality, movements, um, social issues. And I got, I got quite a bit of hate mail hate tweets, Facebook messages, because there were people who did not like that I spoke really matter-of-factly about the need for racial justice or on LGBT issues. I mean, I once think I called a sassy N-word, F-word <laughs> on Twitter, um, which I can handle some of that, but I got a message, anonymous message that was a threat, physical threat once that kind of shook me a bit. And quite honestly, I knew other colleagues who had concerns about their safety. Um, People who had been doxxed, you know, people who, you know, where they, for those who aren't familiar with doxxing, it's when people basically try to use information about you to dig through the internet and find your personal information and they either make it public or they use it to target you. 
So I was already hypervigilant about that. And one point I got followed in my neighborhood. I didn't know who the person was. I didn't know why. But it was with all this other stuff in the backdrop and it was really scary. And the newsroom I was working with at the time, there was maybe only one or two people who weren't in leadership who understood why that was an issue and why it was a problem and why I needed to be kept safe and what to do to keep me safe. Especially when, again, all around the same time, was in communication with a prominent Black Lives Matter activist. And from the moment we talked on the phone onwards, my calls had heavy, heavy interference signal-wise. Um, and I had to use, at the time, before there was signal, another app to call people so that my signal was clear. I didn't know what that was about, but it was scary, especially when we consider issues of surveillance and privacy. The place I was working at was not, very invested in protecting me. And it really had a, a really negative effect on my overall well-being to the point where I just said, you know what, screw it. I'm done with this place and its issues, which they had some reckoning to deal with in terms of how they treated women and black folks. And said, I'm not having this. You all underpay us and this is how you treat me. And when I'm going through a situation like this, you don't want to support me, I'm out. I moved back home and I did not have, it was the first time I, I didn't have a down in my name. And, you know, first time since before college that I was living back home with my parents. And it was, it was for me at the time, I thought it was like rock bottom. Mm. I'm like, here I was doing all these different media appearances, speaking at conferences you know, some of the pieces were going viral uh, online. And now what do I do? I'm, a, I'm out of the newsroom. I'm back home. And I'm not in a hub where there are other media jobs. So at that time, thankfully, some people reached out and offered freelance opportunities. And I went freelance for a while, but it was during that period where I got to do my best work. Hmm. Even if I wasn't making the money I wanted to make, I had a lot more peace of mind. So I say that to say, you know, sometimes failure isn't a stop, don't ever don't ever go back down that road, you know, mm. of doing what you love or wherever it is you were trying to get to or go. Sometimes failure is there for a detour. Mm. And that's the lesson I had to learn in that. Well, that's, um, I appreciate that. You're, most guests will just tell the story and they don't add that this is what I learned from it. So I really appreciate that added little bonus uh, that you, that you shared with, with me and with everyone else too. Uh, Derek, thank you so much for uh, sharing. So honestly and openly uh, and um, 
letting us know a little bit more about uh, kind of how journalists are, are, are getting through uh, these days. So thanks so much for being with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. And that's this week's episode. Thanks again to Derek for giving their time for this conversation. You can follow Derek on Twitter and Instagram at Derek Clifton. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast on the various podcast channels. And also, if you'd like to learn more about my book and my ministry, you can go to my website, christiancoon.com. Thanks again for listening.